Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, welcome to North Main Street Church of God. We're so glad you're here. And uh, no, I am not a comedian by trade. Never claimed it. You're on probation. If you've been with us this past month or any of the Sundays of this month, we've been doing a series called Good Grief. And yes, it's got the Charlie Brown theme and all that. But the reality is it also has a double meaning because grief can be good if it's gone through in a process that leads to a place of acceptance. As I've mentioned throughout this series, grief has a purpose in this broken and fallen world. Grief is not something God ever designed to be a part of our world because God's world was created without the need for grief. God's world was created perfectly. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, we catch and read and understand that God's creation was perfect and good, and holy, and right. When we get to Genesis 3, we see where it all fell apart. And we catch the first glimpses of a world broken and grieving. Last week, we looked at the book of Romans. And we looked at Paul talking to us in Romans chapter 8 of how the whole of creation groans as if in child pangs awaiting the day when God's children will, be, children will be restored in their proper place to hold dominion over the created order. And that dominion is not an abusive dominion, but a dominion that brings peace and goodness and joy to all creation. And today, being the last Sunday of the month, we're actually going to look at the end of grief. Today's sermon is entitled, The End of Grief. There will come a day when there will be no need for grief anymore as a healing process to get through the tragedies of this life. We will not get stuck in depression or anger or resentment. We will not get stuck in these places of denial. We'll actually come to a place where we will see fully as we are fully seen by God. And we will know as we are fully known by God in that space and place and time. It's not some other form of dimension. It is the place where God dwells perfectly in his fullness and in his glory as Father, Son, and Spirit. When we are there with him face to face, we will get to see the bigger picture. All those pieces of the puzzle that I mentioned last week will be in place and we'll see what we could not see from this side of heaven. And there will be an end to sorrow, tragedy, death, tears, all of that which makes this world at times very unbearable. And the way I want to start this message this morning is this way, is what voices are you listening to? There are so many voices in this world. If we just count the voices of the individuals who are alive today, I think we just recently surpassed 8 billion people on the face of the earth. There are 8 billion voices. Which voices are you listening to? There are voices outside of those 8 billion You ever hear the voices in your head, and I'm not talking about a mental disorder. I'm talking about the voices of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy that tells you oftentimes that you're dumb or an idiot, that you're stupid, that you're not worth anything. Maybe it's a voice of condemnation, a voice of anger, a voice of depression, a voice of arrogance and pride that tells you you're better than another person. What voices do you hear? What voices do you allow yourself to be subjected to? And what voices hold sway over the decisions you make? That's a question we all have to ask. Because quite frankly, if you're me, which thank goodness none of you are, I'm an easily distracted person. I was ADHD before there was such a thing. 
I was one of those kids, as you might have already known or guessed, or some of you who have never met me before, this is your first. I was one of those kids that could not focus. And it's a curse on my own children because all of my four kids have had struggle focusing because they have two parents that have struggle focusing. They're just at a disadvantage, but there's a free spirit in that too, to a degree, that helps us to see things that oftentimes other people don't. The reality is, I have a hard time focusing. If everybody in here was talking, it would be very difficult for me. If I wasn't standing up here instead of sitting in your place, it would be very difficult for me. I don't sit still long. I'm bouncing my leg. How many of you are leg bouncers, right? And people think I'm always nervous. I'm not. I've just got to be moving. Uh, But joke that if you tied my hands behind my back, I wouldn't be able to speak because I'm a demonstrative kind of person, right? Not monotone. I'm very distracted. When we get into the car and we're driving anywhere as a family, all six of us crammed into a small confined space and everybody's trying to vie for attention and then one of my kids has a radio blaring and there's all of this noise I go a little loony. My foot gets heavier. My driving becomes erratic. And I just can't focus. And the kid's asking me this, and another kid's asking me that. I can't focus. Because I'm hearing every conversation at once. Can you relate? Some of you can, some of you can't. I don't relate to those people that can have the music on in the background, and the TV going, and then studying for a test, or doing homework, or a project. I can't do that, because I'm so distractible. And so the voices that I hear on a regular basis, I have to kind of weed through. I have to be able to say, okay, which ones do I need to give the most attention to, and which ones don't I? And I feel like I have to respond to every voice. That's a little bit of an OCD thing for me, too. If somebody asks a question, I feel like I have to answer it, even if I don't have an answer. I feel like I have to answer the question. What voices do you hear? What voices are drawing your attention? What voices fade into the background? Because the main voice we need to be focusing on is the voice of God. And here's where it gets really strange, or maybe not strange is the right word. Here's where it gets really difficult. This is one of the questions I get and have gotten most often as a pastor in addition to a few others, but how do I know God's voice? Very few people will ever tell you they've heard the audible voice of God. There are people that will tell you, yes, they've heard it, and you may be one of those people, but the vast majority of people don't hear often an audible voice. They hear a voice gently whispering in their spirit. Well, how do you discern that voice from a the voice of the enemy, or my own voice? How do I know my mind's just not playing tricks on me? How do I know it's just not my thoughts, and I'm just imposing those on what I think God is? Is there even a way to understand God's voice? Well, yes, there is. And if you tune your ear enough to the word of God, you will literally hear the words of God speaking to you. That is not some fanciful metaphorical way of trying to do this psychological mumbo-jumbo or philosophical nonsense. The reality is, the more in tune you are with the written word of God, the more in tune you will be with the voice of God on your daily surroundings. You also need to be a person of prayer. I never heard of communication happening without some correspondence. Communication is not always verbal. I was just talking to one of our uh, gentlemen who teaches who was asking if we have any sign uh, language people. How many of you, anybody here do sign language? Okay, there's a person right over, uh, keep your hand up right over there. Okay, see her after service because you've got a job. Anyway, I figured a way to kind of get that in there. You're welcome. But communication is not always verbal. Would you agree? 
Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they're like, you're like, hey, how's everything going? I'm fine. Their voice is telling you one thing, but their body language is telling you another. Are they fine? Probably not. Yes, I'm fine. Right? Or, or have you been in a situation where um, <laughs> you've done something, but you don't know what you've done, and somebody's mad at you? Right? But they're not going to tell you because you need to figure it out. If you don't know what you've done, I'm not going to tell you. We communicate so well. Now, imagine now doing this with an all-holy and all-loving God who wants and desires to speak to us, who wants us to know his voice, but we don't communicate well with each other. So how do I discern the one voice of all other voices I need to be listening to when there's a sea of voices that are beckoning and begging for my attention on a daily basis? I want to talk to you about that this morning as we close out this series called The End of Grief because there is one voice that is healing, that is, has the answers to what ails you, that knows all, sees all, and understands all beyond our own comprehension and is able to bring a healing balm to our souls. That's the voice we need to tune ourselves to. I joke about this, but it's a, re, it's a reality. Is we spend, if you spend time in prayer, how much time do you spend listening? Communication with God is a two-way street. It's not a one-way street. Where we go to him, we fill in all this space and time, and then we hang up the line. Listening to God is as much a part of the communication, allowing him to speak. I also have mentioned this a million times before. How many of you are parents... Okay, how many of you could distinguish your child's voice from a room full of children? Or your child's cry or laughter? Why? Why can you distinguish their voice among a room of voices of kids? Because you know them. You've listened to them long enough to know that just the slightest verbal tones make them unique above the rest. You know when their cry is legit versus a temper tantrum. You know when their laughter is legit versus courtesy, which my kids tell me I give courtesy laughs all the time. I don't know. They've figured it out. So we are to know God's voice just as intimately. And I hear people say, well, I want to know his voice intimately, but they're not willing to put in the time to be with him intimately in order to know his voice when he speaks. They aren't able to distinguish the voice of God from all the other voices because they don't spend time with him. It's a discipline. And disciplines are something you have to put yourself in the process of doing even when you don't always want to. I've been married to Sarah Lee, and I don't even know where she is in here. Maybe she left and went home. Oh, there she is. Hi. I always look to her for affirmation. Hi. Love you. Um, I've been married to Sarah Lee for 23. We're in our 24th year. And um, many of you have been married much, much longer than that. Somebody, let's see, the, the boat has just celebrated 50 years. You know, that's a long time, right? But the reality is the longer you're with somebody, the longer you know them, the more intimate connection you have with them, that you can be with them, not saying a word, but you can be communicating volumes, can't you? And the only way to get that way is to be together long enough, to lean into each other long enough, to know that when something happens, you know what the other person is more than likely thinking. I want to read to you from Revelation 21, the end of the book. We have 66 books in our Bible, and they all tell us a narrative, a meta-narrative of this story of God's love and pursuit of humanity when humanity has fallen flat on its face and rejected him. 
The kind of love that God gives is a kind of love that pursues, that speaks a still small voice into the surrounding narrative of your daily life, but you have to have your ear quiet enough and tuned enough to hear his voice above all else. And if you're able to run the distance, to run the race with endurance, as Paul says, you will receive a prize. And this isn't a competitive race where we're fighting against each other to win the race. It's as if we are running to win the prize that Christ has laid out for us that we took communion for just a moment ago. And he gives us the end picture, a glimpse into the story of what the end of grief will look like. Revelation 21, starting with verse 1, these last two chapters, and I'm not going to read both chapters, just segments of them. You read them on your own when you get a chance. But John, who writes the book of Revelation, is caught up in body and in spirit to this place in the heavenly realms. <clears throat> and he sees these visions that the risen Christ is showing him of these heavenly realms. And in chapter 21 and chapter 22, with words that humans strain to find to describe what is in that space, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Did you see the triplet there? When you see anything written in scripture that's in triplet form, it is a, it is a uh, way of explaining completeness. The uh, angels around the throne proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty is another example. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making a few things new. I'm making the most important things new. What's he say? I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. When was the first time we heard that in the New Testament? On the cross. As Jesus was nearing the end, he says, it is finished. And to thy hands I commend my spirit. And he died. But here, in a different time in history, there will be another, it is finished. And he will proclaim, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. When was that echoed before? Or what was this an echo of? John chapter 4. Jesus is in the region of Samaria. And there's a woman who comes midday to draw water from the well because she's, she's not quite the woman that the other women are in town. She's tainted. She wears a scarlet letter, if you will. And as she comes to draw water from the well, Jesus says, hey, could you give me a drink? And she realizes he's a Jew, more than likely a Jewish rabbi, because he would have been wearing the Jewish garb of a Jewish rabbi at the time. And she realizes how odd of a situation this is because the Jews would have nothing to do with Samaritans, especially Samaritan woman, especially a Jewish male of high spiritual authority with a Samaritan woman. 
coming out midday at the well. Why do you ask me for a drink of water? And the conversation ensues, and he says, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask for living water. <laughs> to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. There's more, because he gives the other side of that to all who reject me and have rejected me, basically to their dying breath. There will be judgment and curses. I didn't want to add that today because I want you to see there is hope in Christ. I want you to see, apart from him, there is no hope in this life. And if you want to live in a constant state of grief, denial, and sorrow, the reality is you can have that for an eternity. But I want to focus on what it looks like to have the end of grief by having surrendered our lives to Christ. And here's a key point. In the end, there will be no sorrow, pain, death, or crying, for God will make all things new. Do you believe that? Do you believe that verbally? Are you willing to stake your life on that? Because where the word speaks, we should hold it as authoritative. I believe that. I can't fathom what that has to be like. I, I just can't. I can't imagine what it must be like to be in a place where there's no insecurity, where there's no fear of losing your reputation, where there's no uh, fear of putting yourself out there because of rejection from somebody else or being made fun of. I can't imagine what it must be like to have a life of mistakes to be revealed and to be embarrassed by the shame of my own sinful nature and to still be loved in spite of it. Can't imagine things being made actually new and not just a polished up version of the old. And so let me go into the first point. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. I've mentioned this book and referenced this book in, in sermons previous, and some of you have purchased it and read it. I don't know what you think of near-death experiences, but there's a book by a Christian pastor by the name of John Burke who wrote um, uh, a book called Imagine Heaven. And I remember picking it up at the airport. Uh, my wife and I were on our way to Warner Southern College, which is where we both graduated from. There was an anniversary there for uh, the president who was resigning, uh, retiring. His name was Greg Hall. Used to be a youth pastor here. The Hall family had been here. And so we were going down to represent the church and uh, also to go back to our old alma mater. And uh, we had recently had, you know, a few years prior to that, one of our best friends die. Uh, to stomach cancer about our age and uh, left behind three kids and a wife and it was really traumatic and you know when you start to have friends of your own dying that are within the same age range as you you really start to question your own mortality and what it must be like what would what would it be like to leave my kids behind and all of that and, and I remember hearing John Burke on a podcast that I was listening to talking about the research he had been doing for this book and I'm like oh I'd like to eventually get that book well here we are in the airport you got book stands everywhere and here's this book right there on a rack next to the door and I'm like all right fine I'll buy it I'll get it It was like 10 or 11 bucks and I couldn't put it down the whole trip in the airport on the plane any waking moment we had while we were there I was reading it I devoured the whole book in uh, the the amount of time we were there for a few days and it did something to me in a way that helped me to be expectant and not fearing the end and not fearing leaving behind loved ones because I knew that that space, that place where God is, that we call heaven, is, is beyond what we can ever imagine. And that God who is in control and is all-powerful is able to take care of my family even beyond what I can. And so there was a loss of fear and trepidation about the unknown and about death. And I want to read to you one of the stories of one of those gentlemen who 
had this experience through a tragic accident where he clinically was dead. This is where your heart stops. Your brain may still be working. I worked as an EMT a long time ago, and there's this five to seven minute window that you need to get, keep oxygen to the brain before the brain starts dying. So you can be clinically dead, and there are these people that have what are called NDEs, or near-death experiences. And I want you to hear this one man's experience. It's not much different than John's experience of being caught up into the heavenly places in the book of Revelation, or Paul, who wrote in one of his letters that he was caught up into heaven. And some people think that was his near-death experience of being nearly stoned to death and left outside of a city. But listen to his name, uh, Dale Black. Listen to his story. He says, I'm going to take a moment, uh, and it's a rather lengthy quote, so stick in there with me. He was an airplane pilot. Captain Dale Black had always dreamed of being a commercial pilot. By 19, he had already had his pilot's license. Chuck and Gene let Dale fly them on delivery runs across California in order to log more hours so that he could finally get his commercial license. But one fateful day, the three of them took off in a twin-engine Piper Navajo into a clear Los Angeles sky. Gene throttled to maximum takeoff power, but suddenly they found themselves airborne and at an abnormally slow speed. Unable to clear the tops of the trees, Gene veered off directly onto a 75-foot aviation moment. The plane disintegrated as all three pilots smashed into the stone edifice at 135 miles an hour and then plunged 70 feet to the ground below. Only Dell survived, sort of. He writes, the last thing I remember was the sight of Chuck's hands on the controls, violently wrenching the flight controls, fully left and fully back, and then suddenly I found myself suspended in midair, hovering over the wreckage. My gray pants and short-sleeved shirt were torn to shreds and soaked in blood. I sped through what appeared to be a narrow pathway. It wasn't a tunnel of light, that I was traveling through. It was a path in the darkness that was delineated by the light. Outside of this pathway was total darkness. But in the darkness, millions of tiny spheres of light zoomed past as I traveled through what looked like deep space, almost as if a jet were flying through a snowstorm at night. At this time, I became aware that I was not traveling alone. Accompanying me were two Angelic escorts dressed in seamless white garments woven, woven with silver threads. They had no discernible gender, but appeared masculine and larger than I was. Remarkably, my peripheral vision was enhanced and I could see both of their glowing faces at the same time. I could even see behind me while hardly moving my head. I was fast approaching a magnificent city, golden and gleaming among a myriad of resplendent colors. The light I saw was the purest I had ever seen. And the music was the most majestic, enchanting, and glorious I had ever heard. I was still approaching the city, but now I was slowing down like a plane making its final approach for landing. I knew instantly that this place was entirely and utterly holy, and don't ask me how I knew. I, I just knew it. I was overwhelmed by its beauty. It, it was breathtaking. I never wanted to leave. But somehow I knew I was made for this place. And this place was made for me. The entire city was bathed in light. An opaque whiteness in which the light was intense and diffused. In that dazzling light, every color imaginable seemed to exist. What's, what's the right word, he says? And it played. The colors seemed to be alive, dancing in the air. I'd never seen so many different colors. It was breathtaking to watch. And I could have spent forever just doing that. The closer I got to the city, the more distinct the illumination became. The magnificent light I was experiencing emanated from about 40 or 50 miles within the city wall from a focal point that was brighter than the sun. Oddly, it didn't make me squint to look at. And all I wanted to do was look at it. The light was palpable. It had substance and weight and thickness to it, like nothing I'd ever seen before. 
The light from hydrogen bomb is the closest that I can come to to describing it. Somehow I knew that the light and the life and the love were connected and interrelated. Remarkably, the light didn't shine on things, but through them, through the grass, through the trees, through the wall, and through the people who were gathered there. There was a huge gathering of angels and people, millions, countless millions. They gathered in this central area that seemed over 10 miles in diameter, the expanse of the people was closer to an ocean than a concert hall. Waves of people moving in the light, swaying to the music, worshiping God. Somehow the music in heaven calibrated everything and I felt that nothing was rushed. I was outside of the city, slowly moving toward its wall, suspended a few hundred feet above the ground. I'm not sure how I knew directions there, but I had a strong, almost magnetic sense that I was going northwest which meant that I was approaching the city from the southeast. A narrow road led to an entrance in the wall, which led to the city. He says, I moved effortlessly along the road, escorted by my two angelic guides on what seemed to be a divine schedule. Below me lay the purest, most perfect grass, precisely the right length and not a blade that was bent over or out of place. It was the most vibrant green I'd ever seen. If color can be said to be alive, the green I saw was alive, slightly transparent and emanating, emanating light and life from within each blade. The iridescent grass stretched endlessly over gently rolling hills upon which were sprinkled the most colorful wildflowers, lifting their soft-petaled beauty skyward, almost as if they were a chorus of flowers caught up in their own way of praising God. If the people don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. <laughs> In the distance stood a range of mountains, majestic in appearance, as if they had reigned over their entire landscape. They were not mountains that you wanted to conquer, rather they were mountains to be revered. The road was only wide enough for two people, and it followed the contours of the hills. Then it began sloping upward toward the huge wall that encircled the city. He says, next I heard the faint sound of water rushing in the distance. I could see the water. I couldn't see the water, but it sounded as if it were rivers cascading over series of small waterfalls, and it created music that was ever-changing. Between the central part of the city and the city walls were groupings of brightly colored, picture-perfect homes and small, quaint towns. Each home was customized and unique from the others, yet blended harmoniously together. Some were three or four stories or even higher, no two were the same. If music could become homes, it would look like these beautifully built and perfectly balanced. The city wall stretched out to my left and to my right as far as I could see in both directions. A powerful light permeated the wall, and, and you could see all the colors of the rainbow. Strangely, though, whenever I moved, the colors ever moved so slightly as if sensing my movement and making adjustments. My eyes were drawn next to a river that stretched from the gathering area into the middle of the city to the wall. It flowed toward the wall and seemed to end there, at least from my vantage point. The river was perfectly clear with this bluish-white hue. The light didn't shine on the water, but mysteriously shone from within it. The flowers in heaven, he said, fascinated me the most. Again, a delightful and delicate balance between diversity and unity. Each was unique, but all were one, and there were these beautiful flowers to behold. Each petal, each leaf illuminated with a glorious light that added the most right splashes of color to the velvety expanse of the green grass. And he says, as I... Described previously, the grass, the sky, the walls, the houses, everything was more beautiful than I'd ever dreamed anything could ever be. Even the colors, they were richer, deeper, more luminescent than any color I had ever seen in the farthest reaches of the earth or the most fantastic dreams I could ever have had. They were so vibrant that they pulsated with life. And you say, Brandon, that's one man's experience. It's not the Bible. But I want you to hear John's experience further down in chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 10. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain 
And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper. And as clear as crystal, the city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel, who, the angel who talked to me held out his hand, or held his hand in his hand, a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. He measured it. He found that it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, the length and the width and the height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel. The wall was made of jasper. And the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. The wall of the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth christophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl, and the main street was of pure gold, as clear as glass. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need for sun or moon or glory of God, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I don't think we can imagine what heaven's going to be like. But I'm going to tell you, we were created for such a place as that. You find your life being rooted in this world. You were given life by God himself from the moment of conception to the point in time you physically die. It's what you do with that life and in whose voice you listen to and follow in this life that makes a difference. That will lead to such a place as this. And we can think this is all fanciful, that this is fictitious, that this must not be real. It sounds too good to be true. And you can believe the lie of the enemy who wants you to doubt it enough to not give your life over to Christ. You can do your own thing, your own way, however you want to do it. That's not what God desires of you. He wants you to be with him. He not only wants you to be with him in the here and now, he wants you to be with him eternally. That's why he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And the sad testimony of this today is not enough to turn people's ears, eyes, or hopes toward him. I read those words. I hear this passage, and I try in my mind's eye to imagine such a place. And because I am a finite human being with the inability to think beyond human realms, I can't fathom a place like that. But the difficulty is that I could get discouraged and just give up on it and do my own thing because I think it's too fanciful a place. Or I can believe and give my life over to Christ, who has prepared such a place for me. John chapter 14, in my house, Jesus says, are many, or in my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. You can believe it or not. The sad, sad point of all of this is, if you don't believe it, it's too late <laughs> when the end comes. And maybe you've put your stock in your own way of believing and doing things rather than his, and you realize it's too late. We know that God's home will be among his people. Moses desired to see God face to face. 
when he had uh, just gotten the Israelites out of Egypt and up on what was known as Mount Sinai, God said, you can't see me face to face for you'll die. The sinful human frame cannot withstand the full abundant glory of the triune God and live. It just can't. I joke about this, but remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> and the lid was let off the ark, and the presence of God, which was insinuated, came from that, and the best of uh, technology of the day, they had melted wax figures down to the skulls and all that. The reality is, there's some truth to that when you consider Moses in his conversation with God, I want to see you face to face. And God, through his mercy, said, you can't see me face to face because if you did, you would die. But someday, those of us who are his children will see him face to face and not die because we will be transformed in an instant. In the twinkling of an eye, we will have resurrected bodies the way Christ had when he came out from the grave. And he could go through walls and appear and disappear, but he was able to be touched Put your handprints in the nails, or put your hands in the nail prints in my hand. Thomas, blessed are you because you've seen and believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and still have believed. All tears, death, sorrow, and crying and pain will be gone forever. Uh, there's another part of Captain Dale Black's story I want you to hear before we conclude. He said, part of the joy I was experiencing there in this place called heaven was not only the presence of everything wonderful, but the absence of everything terrible. Okay, now let me say that again. The wonderful part of being in this place was not just the presence of everything wonderful, but the absence of everything terrible. There was no strife, no competition, no sarcasm, no betrayal, no deception, no, uh, no, no murders, no unfaithfulness, no disloyalty, nothing contrary to the light and the life and love. All of those things that John had mentioned in John chapter 1 that Christ was. He is light, he is life, and he is love. The absence of sin was something that you could feel. Can you imagine that? The absence of sin was something that you could feel. There was no shame because there was nothing to be ashamed of. There was no sadness because there was nothing to be sad about in this place. There was no need to hide because there was nothing to hide from. It was all out in the open. And there was no fear. Can you imagine such a place? And this isn't a place of imaginary flights of fancy or a fictitious land out of some sci-fi or fantasy novel, but it's more tangible and palpable reality than our five senses could ever experience. If you read that book I just mentioned to you a while ago, they say it's like this world is the dream and that is the reality. It's like you're stepping out of a fog and into clearness in that space. And I would dare say the writer John who wrote the book of Revelations would say the same thing. It is a place not only of majesty and splendor and goodness, it is a place beyond anything that we could recognize or experience this side of heaven. There's a video that I want to close with. And it is a, it's not too long, but it's long enough, and I think that it'll bring home the point of whose voice do you listen to to take you the distance to get to the end of this world that is full of pain and sorrow the end of grief go ahead was in alaska doing a lawsuit we're way out in the aleutian islands getting ready to leave and go back to anchorage and then home and i had a ticket in my pocket to get on an airplane the pastor came up and he said, listen, I can save you money. I said, how's that? He said, I flew a small airplane up here. And I fly a small airplane. And I can take you in my little airplane and you can save your ticket. And this did not sound, I said, gee, thank you so very, very much. But I've got this ticket. We'll just make our way on home, me and this other lawyer with me. 
He said, no, 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 you got to do it, you got to do it. And against every better judgment I had, I said, okay. Well, we went out to the airport, took us by his little plane, and I looked at it. And I thought, well, one good thing, it's shiny. Then he walked around it. We got in. He's on the left front. I'm on the right front. The other lawyer's sitting right behind me. And he started it up. And it started up just fine. Well, we taxied out. I said, should we pray? He said, yeah, that's a good idea. We normally don't. I said, well, this time we're going <laughs> to. And I'm telling you, I prayed five, eight minutes. I prayed a long time. We went and got on the runway. He starts down the runway. The plane lifted off ever so gently, and we start climbing. And it's wonderful. Not a problem in the world. We started climbing, and we flew probably three, four minutes. And something happened that will never leave my mind. The pilot turned to me and he said, we're going in the clouds and I can't fly in clouds. They make me pass out. I said, clouds make you do what? <laughs> now it's been cloudy all day. And we go right up into the clouds and you can't see anything. And he looks at me and his eyes roll back in his head and he starts mumbling and he passes out passed out cold. Now I grabbed him and I shook him and I said, come on, you got to wake up so I can kill you. Now we're in the clouds flying along with no pilot. And my friend in the back seat said, we're dead, aren't we? I said, there's a very good chance of that. Yes. He said, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. But there was a radio right there and I handed him the microphone and I said, start asking for help. So he's in the back seat reaching up and he said, hello, hello. We didn't know any proper radio etiquette. All we were saying was hello. And somebody answered back, hello, hello. Don't you guys know proper radio etiquette? And I said, give it to me. I said, Tell we don't know nothing. Tell him we're in an airplane with a passed out pilot and we don't know how to fly this plane. The guy said, I'm a freighter flying out of Anchorage on the way to Tokyo. And he said, you're telling me you have nobody who can fly that plane with you? I said, tell him that's correct. Now you gotta understand, I am sweating bullets. He said, the first thing I'm gonna do is start circling so I don't lose you because I'll fly out of range of your radio and you won't have me anymore. And he said, I'm gonna get Anchorage Emergency for you. And Anchorage Emergency will be the people that can maybe help you try to save your life. After about five minutes, Anchorage came on, said, we understand you have a passed out pilot. And those of you do not know how to fly that plane. We said, that's right. They said, well, the first thing we gotta do is find you. And I'll never forget what this man at Anchorage said. He said, my job is to get you home safe. He said, that's my job. But he said, here's the deal. If you want me to get you home safe, you got to promise me you'll obey my voice. He said, you can't see me, but I can see you. And he said, if you're not going to obey my voice, you're going to die. When you can't see anything, you have no idea how disorientated you become. Finally, he said, okay, I found you. Now hear me clear. He said, you're four minutes from a mountain. He said, you're going to crash in that mountain and die. Follow my voice. I never said... I have to follow your voice? Is that reasonable? You see, I understood without his voice, I had nothing. And do you understand? Without God's voice, you have nothing. Nothing. Finally, he got us turned. And he said, I'm freezing all the traffic in the area. He said, it's going to take me an hour and a half to get you to Anchorage. And there's a lot of weather between you and Anchorage. You're in for a rough ride. And he said, I want you to hear me. I don't want you to look at what's going on outside. I don't want you to pay attention to the storm, just my voice. He said, if you start watching the storm, you will die. But I'll take you through it. Now, because they cleared all the traffic, several pilots, those nighttime freighters, those 747s started talking to us. They said, we're praying for you, men. You're going to make it, but listen to the voice. That's the key. They said, trust the voice. You realize your head is full of voices and everybody in this world wants to talk to you and everybody wants to be the controlling voice. And God says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. I want you to put yourself on the altar and let my voice be your voice. Finally, we went through the worst of the weather, but there was still more. And then the voice came back and it said, now, I'm going to line you up. He said, I'm going to bring you in right down the runway. 
And at the foot of the runway are some lights, and they're in the form of a cross. He said, don't you forget this. The cross is the way home. Finally, he's bringing us down. We still can't see anything. And all he kept saying is, stay with me. My sheep, the Bible says, hear my voice, and they follow me. Finally, just a couple hundred feet off the ground, we saw the cross. I landed the plane. In fact, I landed it seven times. Finally, it all came to a stop, and the minute we stopped, the pilot woke up. The voice said, thanks for listening. I watch them crash and burn all the time because they won't follow my voice. They don't understand I'm the one who can see them even when they can't see me. But they get the voices in their head and they kill themselves. They self-destruct. Thanks for listening to the voice. Then they put us in a motel room in about four in the morning. I knock at my door. And I open the door and a man was standing there. He said, hello, David. I said, you're the voice. You're the one who got me home. He said, I am. Do you understand one day you're going to stand before him and say, you were the voice. You're the voice that brought me home. If you're not on that altar as a living sacrifice, your head's full of voices. And then we wonder why kids crash and burn. We wonder why marriages are shattered. And the Lord's saying, I'm the one who has the voice. All I can remember is that voice saying, stay with me. Stay with me. Don't listen to what's going on in your head and don't watch the storm. Stay with me. And I'll take you through. Tonight you have a God who has promised to take you through. A living sacrifice, holy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we struggle with a myriad of voices in our heads and in our lives that tell us to do this, that, or the other, but there is one voice, and it's yours, that leads us home. Remind us that beyond ourselves is a place called glory, a place that can only be reached by following your voice. Forgive us where we strayed off that path. We've listened to the voices in our heads or in our lives that are leading us to different places rather than to you. Give us the strength, the courage, the boldness, even when it means we're standing alone or going the other direction that the rest of the world is going. We love you, Father. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.